0: Thank you very much, John. Uh, uh, it's almost Halloween, and uh, John has charged me with scaring the hell out of you. Um, uh, so I'll do my do my best. Um, Will Rogers once observed that when you get into trouble 5,000 miles from home, you've got to been, have been looking for it. And it's a good deal more than 5,000 miles to Baghdad and Damascus. But boy, have we gotten into trouble. Um, as John said, we are trying to c- cope with the cumulative consequences of multiple failures. Just about every American project in the Middle East has now come a cropper. There's, a, by the way, there's a new Velcro-backed military campaign morale patch uh, commemorating this And it's available, I'm not, I don't have any stake in this company, but uh, it's available through Amazon.com for $7.45. And uh, the patch bears an escutcheon with a logo that in the interests of decorum I will not read out, uh, but it sounds something like Operation Enduring Fluster Cluck. (laughs) If you're a Middle East groupie, which your presence here suggests you may be, uh, you need one of these patches for your jacket. Um, It describes what is now the characteristic within the Beltway approach to problem solving. If at first we don't succeed, we do the same thing again, harder, with better technology and at greater expense. The patch provides a cogent, if uncouth, summary of the results of this approach so far this century. We're now down again, we're now again down to the wire in our decade long negotiations with Iran to cap its nuclear program in return for sanctions relief. There's no evidence that sanctions have had any effect at all on Iran's policies. Maybe that's because it doesn't have a nuclear weapons program, uh, the one our politicians say it has. Our intelligence agencies tell us there's no evidence it does. No matter. Iran's mastery of the full nuclear fuel cycle and its development of missiles could give it nuclear latency, the future capacity to weaponize nuclear materials on short notice. The deadline for the latest and likely final round of negotiations is now only 31 days away. The failure to reach agreement could drive Iran to decide to build a bomb sooner Rather than later. Still, those in the region against whom such weapons would be deployed seem to want the talks to fail. Agreement with Iran would, after all, open an ominous path to better relations between it and the West. The half century U.S., half century long U.S. effort to achieve acceptance for the Jewish state in its region has meanwhile died of a fatal buildup of glib hypocrisy, otherwise known as Netanyahu syndrome. Despite decades of trying, American diplomacy has also definitively failed to reconcile Palestinians to indefinite existence as disenfranchised captives of Israel's Jewish democracy. The so-called peace process will be missed. Eventually, there will be an exhibit to it in the museum of diplomatic debacles. In the meantime, politicians will visit its grave at opportune moments. There they will pray piously for peace, by which they mean entirely unclear and incompatible things. The region's leaders were long worried that Israel's abuse of its captive Arab Muslim population would radicalize their own citizens and destabilize their societies. Now that this radicalization has actually occurred, Israel's cruelty to the Palestinians has become just another outrage that Muslim extremists cite to justify terrorist reprisals against the West. Fixing the Israel-Palestine conflict would no longer call off the anti-American terrorism and wars of religion it helped to catalyze. This doesn't remove the Israel-Palestine issue as a motivator for anti-American terrorism. But in the years to come, you'll hear a lot about why curing injustices in the Holy Land need no longer be a concern for American diplomacy. There's been a not entirely unrelated discovery that in the contemporary Middle East, elections invariably, at least the first time around, empower Islamists. This has dialed down the American passion for free elections in Arab societies. Think about Palestine and Egypt. The revelation that anarchy also empowers Islamists is now cutting into American enthusiasm for regime removal. Think Iraq, Libya, and Syria. But as Americans trim our ideological ambitions, the so-called Islamic State, which is, of course, as Islamic as the Ku Klux Klan is Christian. uh, So I'm not going to call it the Islamic State. I'll just call it Daesh, which is the Arabic acronym for it. Daesh is demonstrating the enduring potential of religious fanaticism to kill, kill men, maim children, and enslave women in the name of God. The United States and many NATO countries are now engaged against Daesh from the air with a bit, of a, a bit of help from a few Arab air forces. So far, however, the Shiite coalition of Iran, Hezbollah, and the Iraqi and Syrian governments has been and remains the main force arrayed, arrayed against Daesh on the ground outside the Kurdish domains. This has exposed the awkward fact that Iran has the same enemies as the United States, even if not the same friends. In the region that coined the adage, my enemy's enemy is my friend, everyone's waiting to see what, if anything, this might mean. For now, at least, Daesh is a uniquely brutal force, blessed with an enemy divided into antagonistic and adamantly uncooperative coalitions. Daesh has been able to make itself an irresistibly attractive nuisance by committing dramatic atrocities and publicizing them to an easily vexed Western world. It's battling to energize the disaffected among the Islamic faithful against the West and to clean the Arab world, to cleanse the Arab world of Western influences. It wants to erase the states that Western colonialism imposed after the collapse of the Ottoman Empire. It regards them as illegitimate entities that could not survive without continuing support from the West. Daesh judges that both its policies and its narrative have been validated by the American-European response to its provocations. The major contributors to the US-led coalition opposing Daesh are the former colonial powers. These are Western, predominantly Christian countries, many of them with reputations in the region for recent sacrilegious mockery of Muslim piety. Token participation in the U.S.-led bombing campaign in Syria by the air forces of some Gulf Arab states and Jordan fits easily into the Daesh narrative. Daesh portrays those arrayed against it as a new crusader army with Arab lackeys attempting to restore the broken framework of Sykes-Picot. In this context, Western-led military intervention is not just an inadequate response to the threat from Daesh, it is a preposterously counterproductive response. It is as if the Ottoman Sultanate had attempted to deal with Europe's 30 years' war by condemning Christian violence and atrocities and treating them as a military problem to be resolved by sending in the Janissaries. Admittedly, the United States cannot escape responsibility for policies that help birth Daesh in Iraq and mature its fighting forces in Syria. The US invasion of Iraq kicked off an orgy of intolerance and sectarian killing that has now taken at least 700,000 lives in Iraq and Syria and traumatized both while threatening the existence of the other states created by Sykes-Picot a century ago. The rise of Daesh is a consequence of anarchy brought on by Western attempts at regime change. But it is ultimately a deviant cult within Islam. Its immediate objective is to destroy the existing order in the Muslim world in the name of Islam, as it defines it. Its doctrines cannot be credibly rebutted by non-Muslims. The threat it poses requires a Muslim-led political military response. A US-dominated bombing campaign with token allied participation cannot kill it. The United States is well supplied with F-15s, 16s, and drones, but it lacks the religious credentials to refute Daesh as a moral perversion of Islam, which is what it is. Arab air forces are helpful. Arab religious engagement and moral leadership are essential to contain and defeat Daesh. Daesh and the 15,000 foreign jihadis it has attracted are an existential threat to Arab societies and a potential threat to Muslim societies everywhere. Daesh poses no comparable threat to the United States. Some Americans therefore argue that Daesh doesn't matter. A few suggest that because tide oil and shale gas are making North America energy self-sufficient, what happens in the Middle East as a whole no longer should matter much to the United States. But the Persian Gulf is where international oil prices are set, and if you doubt this, Ask an American tight oil producer what's happening in today's energy markets and why. Without stability in West Asia, the global economy is also unstable. Daesh aspires not only to destroy the states of the Mashrak, the Arab East, but to conquer their territories and use their resources to mount attacks on the United States, European countries, Russia, and China. It wants to get its hands on the world's major energy reserves. Its depredations are a current threat only to stability in West Asia, but its recruitment efforts are as global as its aspirations. Quite aside from the responsibility the United States bears for creating the conditions in which this dangerous cult could be born and flourish, Daesh threatens American interests abroad today. It promises to threaten American domestic tranquility tomorrow. It sees inflicting harm on the West as a central element of its mission. For all these reasons, Daesh cannot be ignored by the United States or other nations outside the Middle East. It requires a response from us. But Daesh must be actively countered first and foremost by those it targets within the region not by the United States and its Western allies. This means that our our response must be measured, limited, and calculated to avoid relieving regional players of the primary responsibility for protecting themselves from the menace to them that Daesh represents. Muslims, whether Shiite or Sunni, or Arab, Kurd, Persian, or Turk, now have an expanding piece of hell in their part of the world a growing foulness near the heart of Islam. It is almost certainly a greater threat to all of them than they have ever posed to each other. Daesh will not be contained and defeated unless the nations and sects on its regional target list, Shiite and Sunni alike, all do their part. We should not delude ourselves. The obstacles to this happening are formidable. Virtually every group now fighting or being victimized in Iraq, Syria, and Lebanon has engaged in or been accused of terrorism by the others. Sectarian violence continues to stoke hatred in the region. The religious animosities between Shiites and Sunnis are more intense than ever. The geopolitical rivalry between Iran and the Gulf Arabs remains acute. The political resentments between Turks, Kurds, and Arabs, and between Arabs and Persians, are entrenched. Each describes the other as part of the problem, not part of the solution. Unity of command, discipline, and morale are the keys to both military and political success. Daesh has all three. Its opponents do not. Some are dedicated to the defense of Shiite privilege. Others assign priority to dislodging Shiite or secular authority. Some insist on regime change. Others seek to prevent it. A few support Islamist democratic movements. Others seek to suppress and eradicate them. Some fear terrorism from the victims and enemies of Daesh more than they fear Daesh itself. Most treat opposing Daesh as a secondary strategic objective or a means of enlisting American and other foreign support in the achievement of other priorities. They don't treat Daesh as the primary problem. With few exceptions, the states of the region have habitually looked to outside powers for leadership as well as firepower and manpower with which to respond to major security challenges. Despite vast imports of foreign weapons systems, confidence in outside backing has enabled the countries in the region to assume that they could avoid responsibility for their own defense, relying instead on their ability to summon American and European security partners in times of crisis. But only a coalition with a strong Muslim identity can hope to contain and shrink Daesh. There is no such coalition at present. Every actor in the region has an agenda that is only partially congruent with the Daesh-related agendas of others. And every actor focuses on the reasons it cannot abide or work with some or all of the others, not on exploring the points it has in common with them. The United States has the power projection and warfighting capabilities to back a Muslim-led effort against Daesh. But it lacks the political credibility, leadership credentials, and diplomatic connections to organize one. Since this century began, America has administered multiple disappointments to its allies and friends in the Middle East, while empowering their and our adversaries. Unlike the Gulf Arabs, Egypt, and Turkey, Washington does not have diplomatic relations with Tehran. Uh, Given its non-Muslim identity, solidarity with Israel, and recent history in the Fertile Crescent, the United States cannot hope to unite the region's Muslims against Daesh. Daesh is a Muslim insurgency. A coalition led by inhibited foreign forces built on papered-over differences and embodying hedged commitments will not defeat such an insurgency with or without boots on the ground there's an ineluctable requirement for Muslim leadership and strategic vision from within the region. Without it, the existing political geography of the Arab world, not just the map drawn by Sykes-Picot, faces progressive erosion and ultimate collapse. States will be pulled down to be succeeded by warlords as is already happening in Iraq and Syria. Degenerate and perverted forms of Islam will threaten prevailing Sunni and Shia religious dispensations alike, as Daesh now does. Where is leadership with acceptable credentials to come from? The Sunni Arab states of the Gulf will not accept guidance from Iran, nor will Iran accept it from them. The alternatives are Egypt and Turkey. Both are partially estranged American allies. Their relations with each other are strained, but any strategy that accepts the need for leadership from within the region must focus on them. They're the only plausible candidates for the role, but both are, frankly, problematic. Egypt is internally stressed and dependent on support from Gulf Arab partners whose main objectives are to carry out regime change in Damascus, push back Shiite dominance in Iraq, and contain Iran. The Egyptians themselves put the suppression of the Muslim Brotherhood and Hamas ahead of dislodging Mr. Assad or defeating Daesh. Turkey is more eager to remove Assad and roll back Kurdish factions associated with its longstanding domestic terrorism problem than it is to contain Daesh. It doesn't want problems with Iran. Until the governments in Cairo and Ankara conclude that containing and defeating Daesh deserves priority over other foreign policy objectives, neither will assume a leadership role in the struggle against it. In time, they may come to that conclusion. But in the meantime, the fact that none of our major security partners in the region agrees with American priorities suggests that we're right to proceed with caution. To be effective, any American strategy for dealing with the menace of Islamist terrorism of the sort Daesh represents must not only find regional partners to support, it must also address the pernicious legacies of past US policies. These include the legacy of the botched peace process in the Holy Land and the more general problems inherent in moral hazard, the confusion of values with interests and the illusion that military power is a substitute for diplomacy. The Israel-Palestine issue remains a substantial burden on the effectiveness of U.S. diplomacy in the Middle East. As far as I know, the United States has never killed a single Palestinian. Americans have just given Israel the arms, money and political protection it has needed to oppress and murder Palestinians in large numbers. In the region, We are not seen as having much of an alibi for our role in fostering Palestinian suffering. Willingness to give us the benefit of the doubt and time to produce justice for the Palestinians expired forever along with the US-led peace process that we had claimed for decades was going to accomplish this. And we often cited it, we always cited it, as a reason for the world to leave Palestinian self-determination to Israel. The next nonviolent phase of the struggle for Palestinian liberation from Israeli occupation and dispossession is likely to take place not at the negotiating table, but in the courts of international law and opinion, as well as other venues the United States cannot control. Given the intimacy of American political, economic, cultural, and military relationships with the Jewish settler state in Palestine, there is a strong prospect that the mounting international effort to boycott, sanction and disinvest from Israel, including especially the Arab lands it seized in 1967, will directly affect American companies and individuals in ways it has not since the Oslo Accords brought about the suspension of the Arab boycott of Israel. More to the point, the Palestinian cause seems certain to prove irresistible to Daesh, as it consolidates and expands its hold on the region, as there's currently no reason to doubt it will. After all, Palestine combines the perfect mix of issues for Daesh. Foreign occupation, suppression of Muslims, and interference with worship at important Islamic holy sites. With diplomacy having definitively failed, The Palestinians believe they have a choice between capitulation and violent resistance. Daesh is reported to be gaining ground as an alternative to more moderate movements like Hamas. To a majority in the region, continuing Israeli cruelty to Palestinians justifies reprisal, not just against Israel, but the United States. Palestinian refugee communities provide a deep reservoir of recruits for terrorist attacks on Israeli and American targets. The growing sympathy for the Palestinian plight in Europe, Latin America, Africa, and Asia offers opportunities to recruit Western and other foreign cohorts. Assaults on Israel and its American supporters meet every criterion of political constituency building that Daesh could hope to find. Israel's right wing government has meanwhile inadvertently been doing everything it can to incite Daesh to focus on it. During Israel's recent rubbling of Gaza, its Deputy Minister of Defense threatened threatened Palestinians there with, quote, a Holocaust, unquote. Not to be outdone, a senior figure in the Habeit Hayehudi party, which is part of the governing coalition in Israel, called for the destruction, and I quote, of the entire Palestinian people, including its elderly and its women, its cities and its villages, its property and its infrastructure. And a deputy speaker of the Knesset called for the forced depopulation of Gaza. This brings me to a core issue in U.S. policies in the Middle East, the moral hazard implicit in U.S. unilateralism Moral hazard is the condition that obtains when one party is emboldened to take risks it would not otherwise take because it knows another party will shoulder the consequences and bear the costs of failure. U.S.-Israel relations exemplify this problem. American political and legal protection plus subsidies and subventions enable Israel to do whatever it wants uh, with its Arab neighbors and with no concern for the consequences. But the same phenomenon has been at work in Arab approaches to the nuclear disarmament of Iran. If America can be induced to take the lead in handling the Iranian threat, why should any Muslim country rearrange its priorities to deal with, to do, do anything about it themselves? Similarly, why should any Muslim country rearrange its priorities to deal with Daesh when it can count on America to act for it? If America thinks it must lead, why not let it do so? But responsible foreign and defense policies begin with self-help, not outsourcing of military risks. US policy should encourage the nations of the Middle East to develop effective political, economic, and military strategies to defend them and advance their own interests, not rush to assume responsibility for doing this for them, part of such a policy adjustment toward emphasizing the primary responsibility of the countries of the region for their own security would involve weighing the opinions of our partners much more heavily in our decisions uh, than they have since 9-11. Had we listened to our Gulf Arab friends, we would not have invaded Iraq in 2003. Iraq would still be balancing Iran. It would not be in chaos, and it would still have a border with Syria. The United States needs to return to respecting the views of regional powers about the appropriate response to regional threats, resisting the impulse to substitute military campaign plans made in Washington for strategies conceived by those with the greatest stake in their success. The need for restraint extends to refraining from expensive rhetoric about our values or attempting to compel others to conform to them. In practice, we've insisted on democratization only in countries we have invaded or that were otherwise falling apart, as Egypt was during the first of the two non-coups uh, that it experienced. When elections have yielded governments whose policies we oppose, we have not hesitated to conspire with their opponents to overthrow them. But the results of our efforts to coerce political change in the Middle East are not just failure, but catastrophic failure. Our policies have nowhere produced democracy. They have instead contrived the destabilization of societies, the kindling of religious warfare, and the installation of dictatorships contemptuous of the rights of religious and ethnic minorities. Americans used to believe we could best lead by example. We and those in the Middle East seeking nonviolent change would all be better off if America returned to that tradition and forswore ideologically motivated intervention. Despite our unparalleled ability to use force against foreigners, The best way to inspire them to emulate us remains showing them that we have our act together. At the moment, we don't. Finally, we should have learned by now that military might, no matter how impressive, is not in itself transformational. American military power has never been as dominant in the Middle East as in this century. Yet its application has repeatedly proved counterproductive and its influence limited. It shattered rather than reshaped Iraq. It has failed to bring the Taliban to heel in Afghanistan or Pakistan. It did not save Mubarak or the elected government that followed him from being overthrown by coup d'etat. Well, sorry, they weren't coup d'etat officially. It does not intimidate either Bashar al-Assad or Daesh. It has not shifted Iran's nuclear policies. It does not obviate military actions by Israel against its neighbors. It has had no impact on the political kaleidoscope in Lebanon. It does not assure tranquility in Bahrain. It did not produce satisfying results in Libya. Its newest incarnation, drone warfare, has not decapitated anti-American terrorism so much as metastasized it. War is an extension of policy by other means. If the policy is incoherent, the use of force to further it will be purposeless. Military action in support of it will be feckless, and the results it produces will be contradictory. Bombing first and developing a strategy later does not work. But that's what our political establishment stampeded us into doing with Daesh. President Obama was right to insist that we take the time to develop a strategy before resorting to the use of force. He was ridiculed for having suggested that we think before we bomb. He did not have the courage of his convictions. Where this leaves us is in an unfortunate position without a strategy that addresses the socio-political factors and grievances that have empowered the so-called Islamic State, or Daesh, and its predecessors. We're going to lose this war. We have a military campaign plan, but we lack a political program. We're bombing Daesh to contain it. There's little reason to believe this will prove effective. Based on past experience, there's no reason to believe it will evolve into a strategy. We and our European allies are in many ways the wrong leaders of the struggle against Daesh. It can only be defeated by a coalition with credible Muslim Islamic credentials. Our armed forces and intelligence services could provide decisive support to such a coalition, but none is now in prospect. Daesh displays unity of command, strong discipline, and elevated morale. The coalition we've assembled to oppose it has no agreed objectives. It is divided, disjointed, and demoralized. Daesh is taking territory and seizing strategic positions. We are using air power tactically for mainly propaganda and humanitarian purposes. This has led us to defend areas that are of little or no strategic importance. We're not blocking Daesh from expanding its territory, population, and resource base, which it is doing. There is no concerted effort outside the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia to refute and discredit the deviant ideology, the theology that inspires Daesh and its sympathizers. It's gobbled up large parts of Iraq and Syria. Lebanon, Jordan, and Palestine could well be next. Even if Daesh can somehow be eliminated, Arab backlash to the distress of foreign attack from the air, sectarian violence, and civil strife ensures the birth of successor movements. Adding yet another factional force to this mix is not going to alter this reality. It may exacerbate it. The approach we're using so far to deal with Daesh is a variant of the bomb first, develop a strategy later approach we have used over the past decade and more. This has helped to spread Islamist terrorism across an ever wider swath of territory from Mali to Kashmir. There is no reason to believe that air force and drone attacks will produce a different result this time. If we cannot correct these deficiencies, we are very likely to see widening multinational and Palestinian terrorist activity against Americans and Israelis, coordinated coordinated by Daesh or something like it. No Arab or Muslim country will be immune to disruption. If there were ever a moment for Arabs and Americans to work together, it's now. If there were ever a moment for the United States to insist on Arab commitment and leadership of such a joint effort, this is it. Thank you.
1: So what do you want to do now? Okay. I won't. You can see why we look forward every year to having someone like Chaz Freeman. Uh, Make such a sweeping uh, analytical uh, spread of the Arab countries, the Middle East, and the Islamic world. Uh, Challenges for the United States, for America's allies, uh, challenges for peoples in the region, challenges for adversaries and enemies alike. Um, His essays from previous um, policymakers' conferences are gathered together in a book uh, that should be for sale uh, by DeLinda Hanley at the book exhibit. I think it's under Just World Books, uh, Helena Koban uh, is the publisher. Um, have five or six essays in there. Uh, he's agreed to take um, a three-part question s- separated by semicolons. Uh, they're not exactly related. Uh, to each other Uh, one is that uh, in your role before as assistant secretary of defense for international security affairs it was often said that uh, our representation in the region was overwhelmingly military defense security assistance if only because of issues of personnel as well as budget and financial and fiscal uh, resources that could be thrown at a a set of challenges versus the Department of State, which is where you had your primary career as a a foreign service officer. So uh, where's diplomacy in this? There are a lot of young people here in the audience. And what, if anything, might you advise them on how they might prepare, uh, perhaps differently than you did or similarly to how you prepared uh, for these uh, vexing challenges? Secondly, Again, as I said, they're not related, these questions. Uh, They're not so much the midterm elections that are coming up within two weeks, but uh, further afield to 2016. Uh, What difference would it make on issues pertaining to the Arab countries, the Middle East, and the Islamic world, were there to be a regime change in terms of political party change here? Would a Republican administration really make much difference given the trends and indications that you're So thoroughly familiar with in the committee of the Republic uh, one way or the other and then lastly and this one is somewhat personal uh, you were nominated by the President uh, Obama uh, for one of the highest Positions in the land as the director of national intelligence was that the title uh, of
0: chairman of the National Intelligence Council
1: chairman of the National Intelligence Council and uh, They went after Ambassador Freeman and not when I say they his adversaries his critics those who did not wish him well uh, and they hardly being bereft of blemish or devoid to defect themselves singled out his experiences in China and made reference to to those in order to fell him or pull him down. Uh, What does this uh, say, if any uh, lessons learned, about our domestic political system and the budding Arabists who are here in the audience of what kind of a career they might aspire to, given the realities of America's domestic political system? How many hours do I have? Uh, day and a
0: half. Um, Thank you, John, for those very difficult questions. Um, uh, In many respects, the United States uh, has gotten into the habit of operating a diplomacy-free foreign policy. Uh, It's carried on the backs of our troops, uh, who are often left holding the bag uh, when the political context for transforming military success into political arrangements that secure peace is not is not accomplished Um, i think uh, there's an additional problem Uh, after the end of the cold war it appears that many americans concluded uh, that foreign policy really didn't matter anymore Um, that during the cold war there had been a sense that as President Kennedy put it, if I make a mistake in domestic politics, I can embarrass myself, but if I make a mistake in foreign affairs, I can kill us all. So there was a sense that there were huge risks and many things at stake. And after the end of the Cold War, this sense went away. Uh, And in many respects, we began to apply to foreign affairs the same political management techniques we apply to our domestic affairs. Namely, we franchise policies to interest groups. Uh, if you, I don't want to pick on a particular interest group, but if, you, if you're if you handicapped, there's a Bureau of Handicapped Affairs, which is normally ha- headed by a handicapped person uh, and takes care of handicapped people. And I'm sure that's a very good thing, but it is a microcosm of a much larger system which allows interest groups to uh, create the policies, enact them into law, and then appoint the people to implement the policies that favor them. Uh, in, in foreign affairs for a while, uh, the Save the Whales crowd had Norway, the non-proliferators had Russia, uh, the um, uh, religious freedom people had China and Tibet, um, and uh, And of course now we have a huge uh, counterterrorism industry and it's got much of the Arab world. Uh, So um, this is not a good way to make foreign policy. Uh, And uh, we need to learn from a fairly unbroken record of mistakes and uh, uh, failures uh, and and get our act together. Uh, I'll just add one more thing here, um, which I think is organizational and it's interesting. Don't hold me to the precise numbers, but uh, President Eisenhower had something called the Long-Term Planning Board at the White House, which was intended to look over the horizon at long-term issues. President Kennedy believed in action, not thought. And so he abolished that, and he created the National Security Council staff. Initially six people, famous people, uh, McGeorge Bundy, Walt Rostow, Uh, Gene Rostow, various people who collectively managed to maneuver us into Vietnam. Um, So it wasn't without consequence. Uh, But fast forward 20 years to Carter Reagan era uh, and this staff of six had grown to about 50. Um, In the George W. Bush era and the Obama era Uh, it has exploded in size, I believe in 2013, it was 370. Uh, And that does not include temporary people assigned for two months or less temporary duty, which brings the total to around 600. Uh, If you have that many people, each of them specialized in some subject matter, in effect, what you have is a group of frogs in wells. You know, the frogs at the bottom of the well, and he or she looks up at the little pieces of sky that he or she can see and says, that's reality. So we have 100 frogs in 100 wells, and none of them connect their little patch of sky uh, to the sky that's seen by others. So we have a system which guarantees that our response to any event will be tactical, not strategic. Uh, so uh, I think... Um, uh, these are things we might think about. What difference would it make if there were a change of uh, regime uh, to another political party? Well based on the evidence, uh, very little at all. Uh, there was a great expectation. President Obama promised change you can believe in and he delivered change we can't even detect. Uh, so uh i don't hold my hopes high about the implications of a uh partisan shift Um, finally uh, what can be learned from the national intelligence council issue Uh, this goes back to one of the problems in washington um, which is the excessive politicization of senior levels of the professional foreign 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 policy establishment. Uh, The number of political appointees and the levels at which they operate in the government has steadily expanded uh, since the Nixon era. And um, and along with this, uh, positions like the one to which I was named and which I actually accepted, it was not a position confirmed by the Senate um, which had its good and its bad elements. Uh, the bad element was there was no way I could clear my name once um, accusations were made. Uh, the, the, um, uh, the, the good element was that normally these positions are staffed by people selected on merit. Um, but even that sort of position is now politicized. Uh, perhaps this process began with the with the borking of Judge Bork, Um, uh, and uh, it has has, uh, continued. Partisanship now extends very far down on the bureaucracy. There's one exception, which is important, uh, and that is uh, the Joint Chiefs of Staff and the military establishment. Uh, Every four or eight years, if we have a regime change, the US government administers a frontal lobotomy to itself, And all of the brain power is excised and goes to K Street or somewhere else. Um, And um, the one part of the government that doesn't change is the military. So both because the military are very competent, we have an excellent military, superb. um, And because they're there and they have institutional memory, uh, our habit is to entrust them with more and more. And this has added to the militarization of our foreign policy, our intelligence establishment, and so forth. So we're caught in a series of trends which we really ought to reflect upon. Um, We're a couple of hundred years into this republic uh, and probably it's time to rethink and I think the National Security Council staff would be far better with 24 people than 370 or still less 600. Uh, At least it would be a presidential staff, not a bureaucracy. Um, So uh, I'd argue that if we do have a regime change, whether it's Democratic or Republican administration comes in, it will be a regime change. Um, We should demand, we Americans, should demand that our government redesign itself and reinvent itself. Now that was the promise after the end of the Cold War, it was not met and we need to call in that commitment. Thank you.